You must feel like you're kind of paving the way. Talk about how important that is. I think it's important personally. It's very important. I have a lot of respect for male DJs. Like I said, they were what inspired me. My teacher at Scratch Academy was a male DJ, one of the best in New York City. I went on to discover after I became a DJ that there are very few of us that are women. And there are very few of us that are moms. There are plenty of gorgeous female DJs in New York City and in LA and in Vegas that are doing it in bikinis and they're killing it. I mean, these girls are so talented and they're so hot. I look at them in awe and I respect them, but I'll never be them. I know that my brand is a little more mature and sophisticated. So the mom DJs, we're a small bunch and I have a lot of respect for mom DJs. I think we bring something very different to the table, right? We, we bring that element of patience and knowledge of music from many, many years ago. I think that definitely makes a good DJ, someone who has a really wide span of musical knowledge, not just hip hop, not just pop music of today. That was DJ April Larkin, and you'll hear so much more from her on this episode, number one of Bucket List Careers. Welcome. I'm Krista Laurie. I was a news anchor and reporter for years, and now I'm excited to try something totally new with this podcast. I'll be talking to engaging people with cool jobs, sharing how they got to a point where they are crushing it and monetizing doing what they love. We're starting with April because I love her strength and her story. She's a queen. She beat cancer. She had a successful fashion career in bridal design in New York City and moved to Connecticut to raise a family with her husband. But she told me something wasn't working for her day to day. And once her youngest went off to school, that's when she really felt it. She had that pivotal moment and actually signed up for a DJ school in the city called Scratch Academy. How many mom DJs do you know? I knew zero before April. She was 42 years old at the time, totally intimidated, but she worshipped music, had the confidence and style, and her career blew up. April says the key was finally acknowledging her self-described obsession with club music could actually become a career. The music part of it was always there. I was the girl at the high school parties that was in charge of the music, whether you liked it or not. I would take over the music at a party. And then when college, the same thing. But going to school in New York City, we didn't go to too many parties. We went to nightclubs. And in New York City, in the 90s, the nightclubs were... Limelight. The best. They're (laughs) the best. I mean, we had Sound Factory. We had Limelight. We had Tunnel. We had all of those. And It was great. It was really great times. Early 90s in the city was a really exciting time for music. It was a really exciting time for DJs and clubbing. And we went out every single night in college. So were my friends who were at colleges in the Midwest and the South, they were going to frat parties. I was going to nightclubs until 7, 8 a.m. every single night, dancing our faces off. Did it ever occur to you, though, then the whole DJ concept? Or were you just so engrossed in fashion? You were working at Vera Wang, right? I had a few jobs before Vera Wang. I worked at Carolina Herrera first. Before that, I was at a small company called Serafina. And before that, I worked for a woman called Candace Solomon, who was a wedding dress designer, who was high-level couture, custom-made gowns. So I worked my way up to Vera. Vera was my pinnacle and final in my career. I worked for Vera for many years. And when you were there, was there something missing for you in terms of that career choice at that time? 
I think staying in New York City and loving music as much as I did, the nightlife and the nightclubs were very much a part of our lives. But it was probably more exaggerated for me because I was young. But what it was back then was the DJs were these rock stars, right? And in these clubs, the DJs were up on these pillars, literally. They were raised up above the crowd. And limelight was like going to church. You know, it was an insane environment. And there was that like little spark that I just, I looked at the DJ and thought, there is this music obsessed person who is like me, who's connecting with thousands of people in the room at one time. And he's doing it through music. Unfortunately, there were no female DJs back then. I'm proud to say I got in the DJ booth a few times and I like hung out with a lot of DJs and I watched them and would just watch in awe and think, God, this is so amazing. I wish I had this kind of job. I wish I had this kind of power. I wish I had this kind of control over a crowd. And it's still pretty amazing. It wasn't until much later on in life that I realized that women started doing it. And I think that happened because the equipment changed. So back in these days, I'm talking about in the 90s, DJing was very much vinyl records. And when vinyl records became not as necessary and people started using digital formats to DJ, that's when female DJs became a little more prevalent because the physical level of not having to carry crates of records around is something that still female DJs would struggle with. It was this love of music and this love of DJs all through the 90s and the early 2000s. And even when I lived in England, we moved to England after we got married and I loved the nightclubs in London, loved the nightclubs that were Euro and those DJs in London. Always just had a fondness for that. So I'm not sure if this happened before or after London, but when you were in your 30s, you battled cancer, you beat it. Before London, yeah, when I was in New York. It's clearly relevant that you come out of something like that with a different perspective. But can you be a little more specific about how it shaped your journey? Did it accelerate your desire to pursue something that's more true to your heart, you know, your passion? That word is overused, but something that you feel is your purpose even? Or did you feel like, I need to slow my career down, be more focused on family? So how did it really shape your path? Yeah, I think any cancer survivor will tell you the same answer to that question. And that is that you're given a gift for sure when you survive cancer, right? You're you're given that second chance. And I think there are many ways to look at it, but many of us come out of it saying it was a good thing that happened to us. Probably the best thing that happened to us because cancer gives you a gift of perspective. And perspective is something that you don't always get unless you have a moment where you are looking at possible life or death decisions. So perspective is is an amazing thing. And yes, it does change the way you look at everything for the rest of your life. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about the fact that I was given this opportunity as a gift. It maybe shouldn't have happened. I look at my kids and think I maybe shouldn't have had this. How did I get so lucky? You know, I mean, there is definitely that little incentive that stays with you forever. There's something that every cancer survivor has that everyone else doesn't. And that is the fearless level of badassery. (laughs) I love that. You got nothing to lose. You really don't. I definitely would not have gone to DJ school. I would not have studied something that is so outside of my comfort zone and worked so hard and put so many hours into it. If I didn't think, well, if it doesn't work, what do I got to lose? Not a big deal. Let's talk about how you got into it. That's really the big question. You did tell me that you felt the timing was right, but there was something missing. Specifically, you had gone to 
a 40th birthday party when you when you had that aha moment and you were you were being introduced as someone's wife and someone's mother which which those are great roles to have but something was missing in that for you a hundred percent I love that you brought up the 40th birthday party because it was a pinnacle moment for sure we moved to Greenwich from London we came here with my daughter who's now 12 and then I had my son in Greenwich so I I had my years of being the mom in Greenwich I had six years of being that stay-at-home mom in Greenwich and loved it and relished in it and was really proud of all of it. Again, because I had had cancer, you know, having two babies was like, wow, you know, and enjoyed every second of it and really did the stay-at-home mom thing. Didn't even question my choices in giving up my career in bridal design. Didn't question any of that, Thought this is what I need to do. I need to be here with these babies and raise these babies. And then my baby <laughs> went to pre-K and was in school all day. And I spent about a year dropping him off at pre-K every day and saying, what am I doing? Where do I go now? What do we do? You know, and there's, <laughs> oh, there's lunches and there's 101 charity events you can put your name on and join and throw yourself into that. And I did. I chaired every event in Greenwich. I was all over that. I loved it. I made friends that are still my good friends. And then there's things like fitness and the gym and soul cycle. I mean, you could fill your day. And so many women do. I felt really empty. I didn't feel really proud of what I was doing all day, you know? And as soon as my little guy started kindergarten, I signed up for DJ school. Love that. Love that. Want to hear about it? What is it called? Scratch Academy? Because if a listener is interested, this is how you do it. Yeah, that's how you do it. That's how you do it. Legit. Anyone can do it. I was at this 40th birthday party and it was a big party. God bless my friend. And I was walking from person to person and having these conversations. And I've been living in Greenwich for six, seven years. Like I had a lot of friends already. And every conversation was about my husband or my kids, every one of them. And we're talking about dozens of conversations. It was, so what's Jonathan up to? Oh my gosh, is he playing in that squash tournament? Is he, how's he doing at work? And then it was, well, how are Jasper and Ella? What grade are they in now? What are they into? Are they playing sports? Are they playing instruments? It was an eye-opener for me. I came home from that party. That night, we went on the website for Scratch Academy and I bought the class. I signed up for this class. I'd heard about this guru who had done amazing things with, with other DJs. His name is DJ Dirty Digits. And you can specifically request him. I don't know if you could still do that, but you could back then. And I signed up with him one-on-one -on -one to start with because I knew I was going to be way out of my league and a lot older than these students. It was terrifying and it was exciting. And for the first time since I had a baby, I felt that nervous energy of what's going to happen and what is this going to be like? And I went to my first class. He kind of looked at me funny and gave me this look like, oh man, here comes a housewife. She's got to be wasting my time. What are you doing here? Are you doing this for fun? Or are you doing this because you want to be a DJ? And I said, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I really love music a lot. And this intimidates the heck out of me. And the equipment and the technology is really, really scary. But I'm going to try like hell. And he's like, okay. And we started talking about music. And about 10 minutes into our music conversation, he looked at me and said, oh, you know your stuff. You're going to be good. So that's what you needed, right? In that moment. Well, from the beginning, he has always been a big supporter of you can do this. You're actually a good DJ. 
he's like, you got the music knowledge. That's 99% of it. Now we just have to teach you the technical stuff, which you're going to learn. And it's going to be like learning a new language, but you're going to learn it. And we did. And I put in my hundred hours. I schlepped into the city every day and I did those classes with him. And I eventually stopped doing the groups. I started doing one-on-ones because I'm a mom and I got to get back for the school pickup line. So I was <laughs> yeah, three o'clock is your deadline. <laughs> I got to get out of the city because I have a pickup line to get on. And that headmaster is going to get mad at me if I'm late. So I got to go. I started doing one-on-ones, which was great. And we did some pretty intense hours of technical lessons. And he taught me how to DJ. I learned on Pioneer Equipment. I learned on CDJs. I learned on vinyl. I learned the real craft of DJing, which was really important to me. I needed to make sure that I knew the real way to DJ. I didn't want to be a hack. I didn't want to be a housewife that just liked to play songs and dance behind a DJ booth. I wanted to be a real DJ. He saw that and he got it. And I think he appreciated that. That was like five years ago. So where are you now? I mean, I've seen your client list. Brag a little bit. Talk to me a little bit about your success and you know what you also credit to the growth. Yes. So before I even finished at Scratch Academy, I had a job offer. I had mentioned earlier that I chaired all those events in Greenwich. Well, putting in your time and chairing events in Greenwich actually pays off. Yeah. Great networking there, right? Oh my gosh. My connections in Greenwich, we hit it off. We became friends while we were spending all these hours planning the Boys and Girls Club Gala for 500 or the Historical Society or Greenwich Hospital Gala for a thousand. You know, these are big, big events that we chaired and you get to know the caterers, you get to know the lighting, you get to know the sound guys, you get to know the event planners. So the second I told them I was going to DJ school, they were like, great, when can you start? So Stephanie Dunashley, who is an amazing force in Greenwich, she ran Greenwich Hospital's social events for many, many years. She's now head of the Red Cross. Everything she touches is a success. She throws really good parties. And so she said to me, and we're good friends because I chaired the Greenwich Hospital under the stars gala. And she said to me, as soon as you're done with DJ school, I have a job for you. (laughs) And then she followed up and said, actually, I need you now because we're having a promotional event and I need a DJ. And I had made a deal that I would do my first few events free of charge in case I was a flop, in case I was terrible. Then I wouldn't say, oh, I can't believe I took your money. I'm so bad. So I did those first couple events with her and they were Greenwich Hospital events and they and they were beautifully publicized by her. She told everybody that I was going to be there and it was my DJing debut and my friends showed up and, and it was this cool community moment, right? Well, that then led to my friends that are my personal friends outside of the event industry at the film festival. And before I knew it, the event producers for the film festival called me up and said, we need someone to open for Flo Rida. And I said, I think you have the wrong number. <laughs> I am I am not your girl. <laughs> that's that's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And Wendy Stapleton, who is the, the chairman of the board of the film festival, she said, you are my girl. You need to do this. This is going to be your moment that is going to change everything. Get up there on that stage and do a 30 minute set. You can do it. And oh man, I probably practiced a hundred hours for that 30 minute set. I was so nervous and so anxious. Flow Rider was late. So my 30 minute set turned into a hour and a half set. I learned a lot that night. <laughs> I learned a lot that night. But you were thrown into it. And clearly that was the beginning of lots, lots of big names and successes. 
yeah, I mean, after that, I, I went on to do many other high profile events that were basically brought on by those first few events. And then it snowballed. You know, my first 50 gigs were female friends in Greenwich that connected me with someone. That's actually what I was just about to mention, that you talked about a couple of women who were giving you these opportunities. I'm not sure if they are the ones who recognize this, but you pointed this out to me that only 10% of the industry are female DJs. So that's really pioneering, but also an opportunity. Plus, like you said, I'm sure that of that percentage, a smaller number are just like you, moms who started this a little bit later in their careers. So yeah, you must feel like you're kind of paving the way and talk about how important that is. I think it's important personally. It's very important. I have a lot of respect for male DJs. Like I said, they were what inspired me. My guru, my teacher at Scratch Academy was a male DJ, one of the best in New York City. I went on to discover after I became a DJ that there are very few of us that are women. And there are very few of us that are moms even smaller still. There are plenty of gorgeous female DJs in New York City and in LA and in Vegas that are doing it in bikinis and they're killing it. I mean, these girls are so talented and they're so hot. I look at them in awe and I respect them, but I'll never be them. I know that my brand is a little more mature and sophisticated. But yeah, so the mom DJs, we're a small bunch and I have a lot of respect for mom DJs. I think we bring something very different to the table, right? We we bring that element of patience and knowledge of, of music from many, many years ago. I think that definitely makes a good DJ, someone who has a really wide span of musical knowledge, not just hip hop, not just pop music of today, I get really into my 90s jams. I love playing 80s. I love playing 70s. Actually, those decades are totally back. I feel like I hear my, you know, 18-year-old playing a lot of 90s, like she's wearing the grunge stuff. It's oh, all cyclical. Her. I love but, her. Oh my God. <laughs> Would you say that's your signature sound, blending the different decades as opposed to one genre? Well, number one lesson taught at Scratch on the very first day is how to read a room. So there's many little tricks that you learn about how to read a crowd. My little trick that I've found comes in really handy when I'm doing galas of, you know, several hundred people. Look at the crowd and look at the general age, right? And if you could figure out the general age of the crowd, play the music that was on when they were in college. Okay. If you can figure that out. Now I know because I'm in my mid forties, I know what music was hot when I was in college, right? So I'm going to play TLC. I'm going to play Biggie. I'm going to play Tupac, but I'm also going to throw in a whole bunch of that grunge stuff because Nirvana was really big then and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. So mixing all that together and you've got at least three quarters of the dance floor going, oh man, this is my jam. Right. I mean, that is it, right? Have everyone on the dance floor and you know, you've done your job. Yeah, hopefully. And keep them there and keep them (laughs) there. keep them there. All right. Speaking of keeping them there or bringing them back, let's talk about the pandemic and how you dealt with that. Um, 2020, not an easy year for a DJ. Not an easy year for a DJ. I think like everybody, I went through every emotion in this pandemic, right? In the beginning, I was so thrilled to be given the gift of time with my family back, right? Because the pandemic essentially started in spring, which is my busiest time of year. The first week of all of it, I lost 27 gigs in one day, my entire season in one day. It was very emotional. And I think like all of us, I was in shock and I was really, really depressed about losing my jobs that I'd worked so hard to get. I mean, I was meant to be opening for Gloria Gaynor 
Wait, is Gloria Gaynor first? I was afraid, right? Is that, is that what we're talking about? That's the apropos song. Yes. Oh, I still play it. I love that song. I was meant to open for her at a gala. I'd hustled all winter for that job. And I had a bunch of jobs in the city that I'd worked really, really hard for. I, I did a gala for Valentino at the Plaza. It was probably the highlight of my career. It was one of the best, best jobs. I was asked to come back. And that was going to happen in the spring. I was doing something at the Bowery Hotel in the spring. Greenwich Hospital was doing another concert that I was going to open for. And that was Honey, I'm Good. Honey, I'm Good. Oh, Andy Grammer. I should have another, but I probably yes, should. It was, yeah. it was Andy Grammer. I was opening for oh, okay. Grammer, who I thought was so cool. And I'd done all the promos for the Andy Grammer thing. So yeah, so spring was looking pretty good. It was probably my best season yet. And then it crashed and it, it all came down. And then it turned into, I get all this extra time with my kids, right? Silver linings, silver linings. Silver you had to linings, look at them right. just to stay sane, right? Oh my gosh, we played board games and we made forts. We played cards and we cooked and all these great things. So much found time. That was the positive of it all. Did you have a strategy at that point or were you just in shock? I was in shock, but I also had 27 gigs that I'd taken deposits on. So there then turned into this moment of pivot. What are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this? Right. I mean, we all have contracts. Everyone in the industry has contracts and everyone in the industry had taken all their deposits for the galas that were going to happen in weeks after the shutdown had happened. So I had to then reach out to all of those clients and say, what are we going to do? We got to pivot somehow, right? We have to find a way to either have an event or just roll it over to next year, right? And do it in 2021, which is now looking like it might be 2022 when the galas happen. But I'm particularly proud of one. We did the Gloria Gaynor Gala. We pivoted that to a virtual dance party and it was for CLC. If you don't know CLC, it's Children's Learning Center in Stamford. They do amazing things. At the time, they were providing childcare for the nurses and doctors and all of the workers in the hospital at the time. So we decided to do this online, virtual Instagram takeover dance party thing, which has been done a million times since, but we were one of the first and it was really fun. And we had 600 plus viewers and we danced and my kids jumped on and we played music for three hours and we DJed and we raised $130,000, I think. It was a big success. And, you know, I don't know whether we would have raised that at the Gloria Gaynor Gala. Maybe we would have raised more, but it was a really fun night. I still got to DJ. I definitely have gone through phases during the pandemic where people have said, oh, you should do it again, or you should you should have another virtual event. And I thought, it's getting kind of weird. Oh, here comes that DJ again. Now I got stuff to do tonight. I'm not going to sit in front of my computer and watch you DJ, you know? And that's probably my own self-conscious vibe speaking, but I just thought it was great when it happened, but now we're so far along. So my new pivot, my new way of getting through this is I've started making mixes that I live record myself at home in my studio. Because at the end of the day, music is really my therapy, right? Music is what gets me through everything. I noticed that over the summer, I'd gotten really depressed and it gotten really dark and really sad. Like I think most of us did when we realized that life wasn't going back to normal as quickly as we thought, right? Music really helped get me through it. And I, I made a couple mixes and then I put them on my website and I shared them. And, and it was really special to realized that I was connecting with people again through music. So many of my friends and friends of friends and people across the country who were shared it from a friend 
reached out to me and said, I just listened to your mix and damn, like it made my day. It made me feel so good. And I, I'm dancing in my kitchen and I'm crying because I'm remembering the old days or I miss clubs. I miss dancing. I miss parties. And I thought, me too. That's how I feel too. I'm missing dancing. I'm missing nightclubs. I'm missing parties so much. And music is necessary. We need it. It is 100% what we need to get through this. That's been my pivot. I made a few dance mixes. I recorded them. I posted them on my website. I'm going to do another one soon. You can find those awesome dance mixes on April's website. It's DJ April Larkin, Larkin spelled with an E, dot com. If you want to talk bucket list careers in between episodes with me or you have a really great guest idea, just find me on Instagram at cdlife3 or on Twitter at Krista Laurie. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. We have more bucket list career stories, of course, in the lineup coming your way soon. So be sure to listen and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. An ironic media production. Visit us at ironicmedia.com.